All right, as Pastor mentioned, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Peter over the next weeks, and I really have enjoyed just personally going through it, and I hope that it is a blessing and a challenge to you as well. Uh, I've entitled it Remaining Settled in Unsettling Times, and Peter really does address that as we'll talk uh, through a little bit of the book and get some overview this, this morning. How many of you, whenever you travel, you always turn the GPS on? Is there anybody? It doesn't matter where you're going. GPS is almost always going on. Is there anybody like that? Okay, there are some of you out there. How, there is always this debate in our home about the... Sharon's already shaking her head like, yep. Uh, I don't like to use the GPS. I know how to get where I'm going to go. And the worst is always when we're coming home from Lancaster... And there's like the, I'm 30 and there's this weird divide right there. Do you, do you stay on, you know, 30 to get on a 72 to go north or is it, do I get over to the right? And I, inevitably she's like, do you want me to put the GPS on? No, I don't need the GPS on. And then she'll put it on and inevitably I, I'm missing the turn and go, I'm the guy going across two lanes and you're getting mad at because I miss it on the GPS. I don't like to use it. But how many of you would say that you, if you are in an area that you're not familiar with, and you need to get somebody, now you're going to put the GPS on. Okay, that's a good number of us. We're going to put the GPS on because we're not sure where we're navigating. First Peter is the believer's GPS for suffering. And I would argue that as we look through this book, we are desperately in need of understanding how to navigate through unsettling times. Times that are new for, even for us, in our, in our world. As we look at our world, as we look at the worldviews that are facing us uh, as believers, there are some new, new waters that we may need to navigate, and Peter is going to help us through that. There are a number of Proverbs that talk about suffering or difficulties in life. There's a Jewish problem that says, I ask not for a lighter burden, but for broader shoulders, because they understand they're going to come. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be sufferings. Confucius said, the gem cannot be polished without friction. Nor can a man be perfected without trials, without difficulties. There is a worldwide understanding that suffering and difficulty and battles take place. And so as we look at the book of 1 Peter, we want to see, how does Peter encourage us? How does he help us to learn to, to navigate through? I mean, even, even the secular world, when you get into the movies, they understand it. And one of my favorite, favorite quotes is this one, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And, and they bring out that idea that even no matter where you're at, I mean, there is difficulty, there is pain, there is suffering. That occurs in our world, and we're hearing those phrases thrown out more and more in life. Suffering is something that we have to deal with in our life. We may not want to deal with it. We may not want to have to face it. But we need to understand as we go into this book of First Peter, when, when the New Testament and when First Peter, Peter specifically, talks about suffering, what, what is he talking about? What does that word deal with? Now, if we look through just a cursory look this morning through First Peter, you're going to see that it is central to the idea of First Peter. The word suffering is going to show up 15 times in this short book of five chapters. You're going to see it come up and up over and over again. Chapter 1, verse 6, you're going to greatly rejoice now for a season if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, knowing that the trial of your faith, and he's going to talk about the, the battles that are there. Chapter 2, down in verse uh, 18 and following, it's going to talk about the, the battles of, of suffering as he looks at, and he says, servants be subject unto your master. So he's going to talk about that relationship. But look in verse 19, it says, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endures grief suffering wrongly. So he talks about the, the injustices of the world and the battles that we face. How do we, how do we address it? It comes up again, chapter 3, verses we read already, verse 15, where it talks about, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Why are you doing that? Because verse 14, if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are you. And he continues to go on and talk about suffering after suffering. So Peter is going to talk about suffering. Now, from our English perspective, if you look up the word suffering in the Oxford Dictionary, it's going to give you this idea that it's to undergo pain, grief, damage, or disablement. To undergo martyrdom is, is the secondary definition that's given. And the range of our English word for suffer covers the idea of pain, loss, grief, defeat. It covers the, the difficulties we face in life, the changes that happen, punishment. And so we can, we, we can take this word suffering 
and we can take our knowledge of the English word, but, but what, does, what does Peter mean by it? What does the, the Greek word have to say? Because from our perspective, in our Western church perspective, where we've grown up in America and American churches, we experience it, we haven't really experienced martyrdom. I, mean, I don't know if anybody here been martyred. You wouldn't. You, you wouldn't be here. We, we haven't really faced a lot of that excessive persecution that we read about that some of our missionaries and some of the people that we know face. We tend to focus when we think suffering just on the illness from, from pain or the pain from illness or the, the grief from death. And we know biblically the Bible deals with that. We've been through the series on Job. We've been through passages in the Old Testament that deal with it. But what word is Peter? Peter uses a specific word here as we go through. In the New Testament, there's a whole bunch of words that are used. You can look through. You can do all the studies on testing and persecution and lacking, experiencing loss, evil situations, all of them dealing with the ideas of pain and suffering and difficulties and grief that, that come. But there are two main words that are used in the New Testament to help us to understand. And they are used a predominant amount of time. The first one is this Greek word called flipsis. It means grief, distress, tribulation. It's used 55 times in the New Testament. That's used more than any of the other words that are above it in the New Testament. And so that word has that idea of the tribulations, the distress, the struggles that we, we go through, the trials. And then there's the word pasco. Pasco is the word that Peter uses every single time when he's talking about suffering. It's the word that he specifically uses throughout. Now, what does this word mean? What is it? Yes, we translate it suffering, but at the heart of this Greek word, what does it mean? It's really interesting when you study it. The word is the only one used in 1 Peter, and it means to be acted upon in a certain way, and that action that is upon you causes emotional harm, causes potentially physical harm or difficulty. It is the idea of something is coming against you and you are feeling the emotional duress, the pressure, the struggle to acquiesce, to change, to feel that ill treatment toward, to feel persecuted, to feel as if people are looking down upon you, saying things about you, and because of that, you tend to shrink away and shy and you feel that pressure coming down upon you. When Peter is talking about suffering in this book, that's what he's speaking of. There's only two times in the New Testament where the word Pascha is actually used to even talk about illness or sickness or, or disease. Uh, in Matthew chapter 17, it's talking about a, a boy who was demon-possessed and had epilepsy. And then in uh, Mark chapter 5, it's dealing with the, uh, Jairus' daughter. And it actually says that her, her Pascha, her suffering, was not because she was dying. It was because of everything that the doctors were doing to her that she felt suffering. So even in those two statements, it's, an, it's a pressure from something from the outside being placed upon these people that are causing them to suffer. So this word that Peter is going to use when we look through this pa- the, the book and we understand this idea of suffering, it's the idea of an outside source is causing discomfort or suffering. So it's that pressure that comes from the outside. Now, that, that makes sense if you know the background of 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter, God's people were living in this situation where there was violence, that it, violence could break out at any moment against them. They were disenfranchised. They were discriminated against. They were mistreated by those in authority, by those in their everyday life. As they were living out their Christian faith, they were beginning to feel the pressure of other people in their society pushing down and pushing back against them. Notice in verse, verse 1, uh, where it talks about Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to who? The strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then down in chapter 2, 11, he gives another description. He reminds us, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers, as pilgrims. He highlights that, that not only where you're at. I mean, they live in this geographical area. They live in Asia, Bithynia. They, they know where they live. They're not necessarily strangers there. He's talking about from a world perspective. As believers in Jesus Christ, he's going to highlight because of the new family that you find yourself in spiritually, this world, it's not your home. You are an, you're an alien. You're a stranger. You're here for a little bit. And then there's an eternal home that is far greater. So Peter is highlighting that there is, you, you don't feel comfortable. 
You shouldn't feel comfortable in this world. And so he tells them, hey, there is some battles. You are going to face some struggles. And so as a result of having this new family that these, these believers find themselves in, as they live out this new life in Christ, they have found themselves suffering at the hands of other people. The, the loss of goods at times, name-calling to their face, the loss of business. We can historically cite all those different dynamics that these believers in this area felt during the, during the reign that was occurring here in, the, in Rome. Now, the Roman culture, Peter, he recognized very clearly, and so did everyone else historically, that there was discrimination, that there was mistreatment against Christians for their faith, and that it could arise at any time. Even though, and this is important to understand, you can historically look through, it never was under the main three emperors that are always talked about, Nero, Domitian, and Trajan, who were the, the three worst when it came to persecuting the Christians. It was never declared from the state that Christianity was illegal. It, it, historically, it is not accurate. So it was never an illegal thing to be a Christian. So why were these people persecuted? What was it about the, Ro the Roman culture? Part of it started that the Roman culture steeped in emperor worship. That you were required, by the time it gets to Trajan, about, about 40 or 50 years after 1 Peter is written, if you did not sacrifice, you were put to death. So you were, you were very much manipulated into, you had to make a decision as a believer. Are you going to sacrifice to the emperor or say I sacrifice and I only, I only worship the true and living God? And so they were faced with this intensity for the, for the emperor worship. It was hostile. It was a situation in which it was difficult for believers to live in as they tried to live out their faith. Nero, who is the emperor during 1 Peter, he began much of the distrust, much of the animosity toward the Christians. Do you remember, you remember what happened? What, is, what does he do? He's going to say, hey, they came and they stormed our capital, and they tried to take out our capital, and then they burned it to the ground. Who's the one who burnt Rome to the ground? It was him. It was him himself. He was the one who did it. And it's no new playbooks, you know, blame somebody else for storming the capital, and then it was, anyway, I'm not going to not, not go there totally, but we, Nero, Nero does this, and this distrust elevates in their life. And he would even, I mean, you can look through, he would use Christians as human torches, dipping them in oil and skewering them and putting them around his parties and lighting them on fire. As they continued, Christians who would live their faith out were dressed up as animals and put into uh, the arenas to be faced against wild beasts who would tear them limb from limb. It was not a time where you're like, hoo-hoo, I'm a Christian. And yet Peter is going to look and say, there's joy. There's hope. You can continue to live in the midst of an unsettling time. You can have this, this way. Hostility toward believers, it grew. As it continued from Nero to Domitian to Trajan, it intensified. And as the leadership grew and the distrust and the authorities and the experts grew with a greater distrust toward the believers, guess who felt more and more courageous to show and to act out host host hostily against them? It was everyone else. It was the neighbors. It was the, the co-workers. It was the businessmen, the businesswomen who were there because the leadership was doing it. The, the experts were saying these, these Christians are, they're, they're, they're ludicrous. They're a problem. They're a menace to society. They don't have the greatest good, the greatest intentions of our society at large at, at their heart. And so it allowed people to feel comfortable to do that. So local eruptions of violence took place all over, especially in this area of Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia Minor, some of the, one of the, about, about 80 years after Peter writes, one of the, the most, Pliny the Younger is his name, one of the, the most violent of people against Christians lived right in this area. So it's almost as if God knows, hey, this area right here, they, they're going to need this message. They're going to need to know how to handle themselves when suffering occurs, when unsettling times rise up. And we can, look, we can look here and, and we can look at the, the attitude toward the believers at this time. And it was a lot of life for the Christians to have to experience and would experience mistreatment, discrimination, suffering. It was a reality that these believers faced on a daily basis. Now, 
I was, I was really wrestling with, is it just because they burned down Rome that, this, that these years of, of mistreatment, is that why it occurred? And I came across a book uh, by Martin Goodman. It's called Mission and Conversion, proselytizing, and they, they always give these huge titles to some of these books, but about how evangelism that happened or proselytizing in the Roman Empire. And there's a whole section on what was it that Romans did not like about the Christians, they didn't like that it was this upstart, young, new religion thing with little traction, so they sort of discredited, like, it'll fade away in time. But what they really didn't like was the unwavering faith of the Christians, that they would not sacrifice, that they wouldn't just, just give in and go sacrifice to the emperor and then walk away and say, it's no big deal, I really didn't mean it, you know, cross my fingers, say what I'm going to say, and, and walk away. They did not appreciate the unwavering faith. One of the important things that he highlights is that Christianity's claim to the sole possession of truth violated an important tenet of Roman society. Rome had at one of its core beliefs was conforming tolerance or reciprocal acceptance. In other words, you can believe what you want, you can believe what I want, I can believe what we want, we can all have truth and we can all just get along. Sound familiar? not much has changed since the first century, has it? That we're supposed to, you have this exclusivism as Christians. You think you have this sole authority, this absolute truth. We do. It's called the word of God. And as God's word is laid out, they did not like that because they were going against the, I want to live how I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be who I want to be. And now you are going to try and proselytize me. You're going to Bring me over. And in the process of proselytization or evangelism, what do you have to tell them? Your way is not right. Your way is wrong. You live in sin. Your choices you are making are sinful according to God's standard. So that is what drove persecution. And are we not facing that? Do we not see that in our society today? the mocking, the ridiculing of the fact that you think you have all the answers. You think you know everything. You, you Christians are just this exclusive group. Can't you just be tolerant of everything we want to believe? I can be tolerant if it's according to the word of God, but I can't if it's not according to the word of God. And so as the word of God is laid out, yes, there is a difference, and there, there will be. This is a battle of worldviews. In Rome, it was an issue of worldviews. Two opposing worldviews coming at each other. In America today, we have a differing worldview as believers than the world does. We ought to. We ought not be looking and saying, how can we change what the Bible says so that we can be more acceptable to what the world wants? That does not compute. It does not work. And Peter is saying, there is going to be suffering. There is going to be difficulty when you choose to stand in unsettling times for truth. And so it goes on, but I know what some of you are thinking. We live in America. This is America. We're good. We don't, we don't face this. We don't have this problem. It's not illegal for us to meet. We don't, play, we don't live in a place where government is openly opposing or persecuting us. So this isn't a big deal for us. We don't face this type of suffering. First Peter's relevant for us. If it's about the suffering, oppression, discrimination, the, the mistreatment of people at the hands of the world, folks, maybe it's time for some of us to take our heads out of the sand and look and say, wait, this is going on. This is happening in our country. And we need to look and say, okay, wait, how does, how does God want us to address this? Because if we're going to live for righteousness, if we're going to live holy, as Peter tells us to, there's going to be some difficulties we will face. We, we look at America right now, and have you ever, have you, if any of these terms sound familiar? We're, we are being inundated in the last year and a half with these, and it's been decades. But we come across and we hear these terms. Social justice, by the way, is not biblical justice. That's for a whole nother discussion, a whole nother time. But you start looking at these terms, and when you start reading them, do you sort of feel like, I really don't want to talk about I feel uncomfortable. I don't think I should say anything. Or you've been in job situations where you start to talk 
And all of a sudden, you're being told, wait, you can't say that. You, you're, not, you're not right. You can't. The stated goal, and this is, this is not me making something up and building a straw man. The stated goal, when you study, I've been doing it for the last eight months, just personally. The stated goal of the social justice movements and all of the different other organizations is literally to alleviate or remove the oppressor, okay, and redistribute their power and authority. That is the stated goals. And you're saying, well, what does this have to do with anything in First Peter? Hear me out. Just, just go with me because some of you are like, I really don't want to hear about any of this. Again, maybe it's time for us to pull the head out of the sands and, and wake up because it's here. It is at our doorstep and it has huge implications to us as believers. So you look at this and you say, well, well what does it mean to be oppressed? What does it mean to have this happen? There, who's the oppressor? Who's the oppressed? How does, how does this all work out? I'm not going to go into it all right now, but I, wanna, I just want to just show you from, from current cultural issues, one thing and how it applies to our situation. There's this term called hegemony. And it's, again, you're like, whatever. What this means is basically hegemony is every society has this ruling entity or group. Every society. And, and they are the ones with the power. They are the ones who make the decisions. They are the ones with the authority. And it is defined based upon your cultural situation. So in America, when we look, we're taught, see the subgroups. Don't we? I mean, have you ever wondered why when you watch the news, it's like, well, according to the recent polls, president is ahead with the white, uh, the, the white middle class, able-bodied people who live in the southeast section. We're taught to think in all these little subgroups, aren't we? We're, we're taught, we've been taught that. In America, this hegemony or the hegemon, the ruling entity, when you read through all social justice books and articles, the ruling, the ruling group right now is white, male, cisgender, that means your birth gender, so you identify as what you were born as, uh, you're native born, you're not an immigrant, you're able-bodied, you're heterosexual, you're a Christian. Okay, I just ticked off all of those. I am the oppressor. Okay, that's, that is from their perspective. All of those things. So the more boxes you check off, the more privileged you are. The more privileged you are, the more of the problem you are. You are the oppressor. You are pushing down upon those who are not that. Do you ever wonder why in America there are more women than men and yet women are considered a minority? It's because they're not that. They're not, they can't check that mailbox off. That's, how, that's all, how it all starts to work. Now, because of that, because this is what is being in critical race theory, in critical theory, in social justice movements, this is what is being taught, this is what is being pushed through, because of that, look, look at what that last one was. What's the last one in the hegemon? Christian. There is, there is seriously a whole movement right now talking about Christian privilege. That as Christians, you have authority you didn't even know you had. You have power that you didn't even know you had in America. And we need to, as part of the statement of social justice movements, overthrow those oppressors. So if we're going to overthrow those oppressors, remove them from a power and authority, what's the potential coming down the road issue for Christians? It's persecution. It might not be martyrdom, but it is the fact that we as a society of believers, as Christians, are going to be in the, in the years to come facing more and more opposition. And it really is a thin line between name-calling and biblical suffering for your faith. And as we stand up for the righteousness of Christ, as we hold to the word of God, this suffering is a, is a real potential. Just this week, talking with one of our college students, I really appreciated their perspective as we were talking about this on Wednesday nights. They said, this is exactly my issue at work. I don't feel that I can ever talk about my faith because as soon as anything religious comes up, we're shamed. We're put down. And so it's like, I, I want to wait to find the right time. I said, when's the right time going to be? And they were like, 
That's the battle I'm having. I know that I need to share my faith. I know that I need to stand for righteousness. And yet, many of you are there. You start to talk about Christ, and you're ridiculed. You're laughed at. You're anti-science. You're, you know, people who believe all these, these crazy things, and, and you battle with it. And Peter is saying that oppression, that the mistreatment that is coming, he says there's glory in it. Still share Still talk about the word of God. So as Peter writes from Rome, and he is writing from Rome in chapter 5, verse 13, you'll see that it says from Babylon. He's using that as a a code word of sorts to to represent the dominant hostile world. We know that he's in there because he mentions that Silvanus or Silas is there and that he's there with Mark as well in uh, verse 13. Mark was there, we know, from Colossians and Philemon. They're all there with Paul. And they're going to be going back to Onesimus and Colossae. Silvanus is going to be the one who's going to take the letter of 1 Peter into Asia Minor. So he's writing it from Rome to these believers. Now, when people look at the authorship of Peter, they say, well, Peter's not really the, the author because as they look, they say, well, the Greek is too good. In fact, it is stated by a number of people who are really much better at Greek than I am. They said that it's some of the best Greek grammar in the entire New Testament. So how could this ignorant fisherman actually write this book that is so, so good? Well, remember, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is one of the, the beautiful, most beautiful works of, of literature in the English language, and he was simply a tinker. He had no formal education, yet he writes. It can happen as well. What was Peter? He was a fisherman, right? He had to do business. What was the language of the day? Business language was Greek. He had to know his Greek in order to be able to speak. So it's, it's not that he was just ignorant and foolish and, and couldn't put it together. Another reason that comes out is when Peter quotes the Old Testament, every time he does it, he doesn't quote it from the Hebrew Bible. He actually quotes it from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so critics have said, well, you know, he wouldn't do that because Peter was very pro-Jewish. He would not have done that. Or could it be the fact that Peter understands as he's trying to communicate to his readers it's not surprising that he's going to use a version that's going to use their, their common idioms and their common phrases that they can understand what is being written. So Peter is the author as we, as we see. I mean, it says, right, verse 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He lays it out pretty stri- straightforward and simple. The area that he writes to is called Bithynia, Asia Cappadocia, Asia Minor, or what we have as modern-day Turkey. So he's writing it back to, to these believers in this area. Now, the question that it comes up as, are these people Jews who are believers? Because Peter uses in one one when it talks about that they were scattered uh, throughout. The word is the diaspora. And so James uses that, and historically that word has been used to talk about uh, the scattered Jews. So a number of, of commentators will say, well, these are believing Jews who have been facing persecution and are scattered. And because there are all these Old Testament references, Peter had to be writing to, to Jews. So he talks about the priesthood, Abraham, Sarah, Noah, all throughout the book. But there's another perspective that comes out too that he's writing to Gentile believers. And one of the reasons why that people talk about is the heritage that Peter talks about. When you talk about your heritage, do you, do you tend to focus on the bad things from your family's history past? Or do you highlight the, the good things? Like Everybody doing the genealogies now, like, oh, I'm related to so-and-so, is related to so Somehow it seems like everybody I talked to recently is able to trace themselves back to Jesus. And I'm like, that really doesn't work, but we can talk about that later. And, and they keep trying to do this. Well, we, we like to highlight the really popular people in our, in our histories, don't we? Well, this, this individual, William, um, I'll, I'll read a little bit about him. William, he, the, the gentleman that I have portrayed there, uh, was born in England in 1607. He came to New Haven, Connecticut in 1635, and there he helped to found New Haven, Connecticut. He found himself on the board, uh, one of the highest seats in the, in the district and in the area. He eventually purchased a, a plot of land and then later donated and sold part of it to Yale University, and Yale began on the premises of this individual's homestead. So as, as people look back from this individual's lineage, they like to look back and go, look, he was a founding father in Connecticut. He helped to establish a Yale University. But when you dig a little bit deeper in this guy's past, or his, his family tree as it comes out, uh, his family, he had a daughter named Sarah. Uh, Sarah was known as being uh, the, 
the woman of the town who liked to run around. And so Sarah like began in, in a Puritan society that was not, not going to be a good thing. It was going to cause heartache and difficulty. Well, Sarah's brother Benjamin got in a fight with her one day. And when they got in a fight with her, he got so mad. He says, he says to her, you don't need to be short with me. And he runs out, storms out of the house. He comes back in with an ax and then splits his, splits his sister's head open and, and kills her. Well, that's not the only one in the family. Later on, there's another one in the family who does the same thing with an ax. It's like, uh, I don't know if I want to be near people from this family who, uh, you know, everybody's killing each other with axes. If you're going to lay out your family tree, which, who are you going to focus on, this guy or the kids? If you don't know, you can ask, um, you can ask this person because this is his family history. And I do have permission. Micah, Micah sent this to me. This is from Micah. And for those of you who don't know who Micah is, Micah is a former pastor here at our church. Uh, really great guy who loves the Lord. And he, you, who are you going to focus on? You're going to focus on the, the positive people, not, not the negative history. Well, when Peter starts talking about the heritage of the, the people in uh, 1 Peter, he's going to talk to them. And he's... I, I, as you look through these Gentile believers, why does he talk so Jewishly to them? He wants them to know that despite your opposition, despite your persecution, despite the difficulties, you belong to the family of God. You are part of God's children. You belong to him. And he lays it out in chapters one and in part of chapter two about how we are part of the family of God if you are a believer. And all the opposition and all the suffering is but for a short time because our hope is found in the one who has redeemed us, our living hope, Jesus Christ. And that is a future hope that we look forward to. When you look at the way that Peter addresses the heritage of these believers, you can go through. He doesn't, he doesn't paint it in a good light. And what we know about Peter, he is this, this Jewish man who is very strong Jewish, and he loves his Jewish traditions, and yet you look through, he talks about in chapter 1, verse 14, that there is a former lust of your ignorance, or in other words, your pay, the, the word ignorance has this idea of a foolish, idolatrous, paganist past. Verse 18 talks about the vain lifestyle of your traditions from your father. Uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, out of the darkness, you were not a people. A Jew always talks about we are the people of God. We don't talk, we're not a people. He says, now you are the people of Go over to chapter 4. I think this one is really important to, to, to see how he describes the former lifestyle. And he's not using just nebulous, although he does use some terms to sort of encapsulate what we were like before we were saved. He talks about where in uh, verse, verse 3, for the, time par, uh, for the time past of your life may suffice us to have wrought the will of God of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wines, reviling, revilings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, uh, you, you look, the ESV puts it, living sensually, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. He's, he's not painting a good light of the heritage. And there seems to be a strong emphasis by, by many commentators that he's talking to Gentile believers who are for the first time really starting to face some real hardships some huge difficulties that are, that are coming about. Now, if you get this letter, you're like, well, who is this guy? Who is Peter? Because notice down in verse 12 of chapter 1, Peter has never met. He's not been to these churches. He says, he says to them, uh, right in the middle, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you. He's saying, I'm hearing all of this by people who've been with you, but I haven't been there. So who is this Peter? That, that we see. We see right on in verse 1. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ, which brings about authority. He is somebody who has walked with Christ. He is somebody who knew Christ. He is somebody who has seen Christ resurrected from the dead. There is an authority, especially in the early church, when somebody was truly, genuinely an apostle of Jesus Christ, there instantly came authority with that. And so Peter says, laying it out, you don't, you've never met me, but I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, so listen to what I have say. He was a witness of Christ's sufferings, which is important to know. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, when he's talking to the fellow pastors that are there, he says, 
and a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that, that Peter didn't see all of the sufferings because he fled at night, but was Jesus suffering only during the crucifixion time period? Weren't there other times when he's bleeding in prayer? Weren't there other times when he is being reviled and persecuted and mocked? And Peter saw, he watched how Jesus Christ handled himself in the face of opposition. And Peter is able to now say, I've seen this happen, and I want to tell you about what Jesus Christ did. Not only did Peter see it, but Peter himself has been through it. He has suffered through experiences. Remember, yes, he denies Christ. We remember that. But as he denies Christ, you get to the book of Acts, and do you remember Peter's story? You get to Acts 2, and what happens? Peter stands up at Pentecost, and he preaches, but down in verse 13 of Acts 2, it says that the people were mocking the apostles as they preached. They were jeering them. They were ridiculing them, saying, you guys are drunk. Peter's, Peter's faced a verbal opposition to sharing the gospel. You see it in chapter 4 when he's preaching, and then he's going to be put in jail because he's sharing the gospel. And it gets to the point where as he's sharing the gospel, he's thrown in prison, he's brought back out, and he's going to do it again. And what does he say? We ought to obey God rather than man. Why? Just, it wasn't just this defiance in your face government. He was saying, for the sake of the gospel, I can't stop talking. I can't give in to a political correct agenda and not share the gospel because that would not be what God would have me to do. I must obey God rather than man. It is so relevant. This book is so relevant for us as we look at Peter's life. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, do you remember that the, 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 the religious leaders are pushing against them? They're gonna, we're going to stop Peter and John. We're going we're to shut them down once and for all. And Gamaliel comes to them and, he, and they say, well, you know what? You guys just need to leave these two alone. Because if this be of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow it. Now, let me ask you very honestly, as we sit here in 2021 in America, do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be overthrown? Do you believe that? Do you believe that it is the true answer for our society? It is what people need. If we believe that, then how can we stop talking? And even Gamaliel, an, un, an unregenerate person here, looks and says, the gospel can't be overthrown if it's of Jesus Christ. And if we're saying it is of God, then we must continue to move forward with the gospel. We must be living it out in our lives. We must live holy lives that allow people to ask us of the hope that is within us. Chapter 3, verse 15, where we're told, be ready to give that answer. Peter continued in his life, preaching the gospel, not shutting down despite that background, despite the opposition of his society, even to the point where he ended up dying on a cross. And historically, tradition tells us that he didn't feel worthy to die the same way as Christ did, so they crucified him upside down at the hands of Nero, only a few years after he writes this book. Peter's lived it out. So when he talks about how to handle oppression, how to handle suffering, how to handle mistreatment, how to handle a world that is hostile to what you believe in and how to live in that world, and what do you do when you live in that world and all of a sudden it becomes more hostile? Peter's an expert. He's seen how Jesus has handled it. He's got the authority of being an apostle. He is here living and has lived it out in his life to tell us you can you can handle it. You can go through it because our hope is not rooted in, oh, what are my circumstances like? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the return of him and that the future glories of, of Christ await me as a believer. So what does this veteran sufferer have for us in this book? It's hope. He looks and he says hope. Now hope is not this pious optimistic, everything's just going to turn out right, so I'm just going to live and do whatever. Hope is as we've seen. Look in verse 13 of chapter 1. Wherefore, gird up your loins, the loins of your mind. In other words, prepare your mind, prepare yourself for what is coming and the preparation for the world at hand. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, our hope to the end is that Jesus is coming again. 
that he is returning. And when he returns, we've just went through the whole series on the end times. When he returns and when he calls us, where are we going for the believers? We're going to a far better home. We're going to a far better place. And he says, you will face these trials and these difficulties for a short time. Because even if it's 40 years of suffering, in the scope of eternity, he says, it's but a short time. And you can endure and you can handle it. Hope is not divorced from behavior. This is important. Rather, it's foundational to the Christian lifestyle. He's going to talk about, right after he talks about this hope that we have here in the end, he says, uh, be obedient children, verse 14. Be holy as I am holy, verse 16. He says, you're going to have to live righteously. How do we, look, at, look in chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles. While you're living in this world, be honest. Live righteously. Live holy. And as that is happening, as they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, by how you're living, how you're acting, what you're doing, behold those and glorify God in the day of visitation. Chapter 3, verse 15. He comes back at it again. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer of every man that asks you of the reason of the what? The hope that is within you. It's not just this pious optimistic. It is the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back again. That my, my hope is resting in Jesus Christ. And that's why I live the way I do. That's why I act the way I do. That's why I believe things I do. Not because of just me, but because this is who Jesus Christ is, and this is how Jesus Christ expects me to live in this unsettling world. And so Peter looks and says, hey, we can do this. You can live holy. You can live a hopeful life. You can go forward. And what does it do? Chapter 1, verse 21, he says that when, who by him do you believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. My hope is grounded in the fact that God has already demonstrated himself faithful. He's already demonstrated himself trustworthy by raising Christ from the dead. And he's, Christ is coming back. And Peter is saying, God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness should propel us. Our confidence in him should propel us to live in this world, to take our mind off of the present situation. It is designed to move us from that perspective of the present suffering and look forward to our glorious hope, our glorious future as the family of God. Now, Peter's going to help us with a lot of the practical, how to live, what to do as we walk through the book. He's going to talk about, in the first part, he praises God, who says he saved us unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on a little bit further in the book, verses, uh, chapter 1 through 2, and he says, okay, now that you've been saved, what does your identity in Christ look like? What is this new family dynamic that you have? And theology does not just simply consist. We, we're not going to study just simply to say, oh, we know all these facts. It should compel us to live it out, to apply it to our lives. And that's what Peter does in chapters two through four. He gets very practical in how to live. How, how do you interact uh, slave to master in, in your job situation? How do you react to this new identity as a family, as a husband and a wife, loving and submitting and loving your, your wife? How, how do you play that out? How do we function as a church, as a community of believers, interacting when, when opposition and persecution comes? What should we be doing? He, he identifies all of that. And he says, when you live that way and hostility gets more intense, look in verse, chapter four. Chapter four, down in verse, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. He says, when you live righteously, when you live holy, don't think that it's all that strange that difficulties are going to come. And then he says, this is what we do. This is how we, we should respond to that. And he lays out the rest and how the church is to minister and how, how we're to work together as we face opposition, as we face unsettling times. Peter, Peter says, we can do this. God says, we can do this. God has uniquely placed each and every one of you in this world at this time. You may wish you could just live in the 50s and not have to, but the 50s had their issues and the 20s had their issues and we can keep going back. 
But God has uniquely placed you in this time period to be able to address and to impact this world with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we are called to do, to go back. Now, you look at, you look at this individual. We, we talked about William Tuttle. There he is. But there's more, there's more to his story. In fact, their family faced opposition and suffering, but one of, their, one of his great-granddaughters married a, married a name by the name of Robert Edwards. They had a son whose name you're very familiar with. His name's Jonathan Edwards. So in fairness to Micah, he does have a really good person in his family tree too. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the, the person of one of the last great revivals in America, despite all of the opposition that was brought down upon his family because of all the ways that they acted and everything that had happened, he pushed through. He, he anchored his hope in Jesus Christ. He said, Christ is the one that I'm going to anchor in. And he preached and revival broke out because he stood for righteousness sake. Because Peter sees this. He sees opposition as an opportunity to show others the generous love of Jesus that is fueled by our hope in his return. This world is not our home. This is but for a short time. We need to stand for righteousness sake. We need to anchor our hope in Jesus Christ. Wearsby said it this way. Hope is not a sedative. It's not a shot of adrenaline or a blood transfusion. He said, like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in the storms of life. But unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward and does not hold us back. Our hope is to rest in Jesus Christ. That is where Peter, as we study through this book, we will see that he is our hope. He is our anchor. And amidst all the suffering and all the oppositions that we may face, he is the anchor to which we are to hold fast. He is our sure, our steady anchor. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn. In the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor, though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor Through the floods of unbelief Hopeless somehow, O my soul Now lift your eyes to Calvary This my palace of assurance See his love forever I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. 
Christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death. When these trials give way to glory and we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secured, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endured. Christ the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true. We will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Peter, Peter ends the book in chapter 5, verse 10, with a great admonition. He says this, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish you, strengthen you, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says that through all of it, the hope is that we will be established by God, that we will be strengthened by him. That is the hope that we have as we go forward today, this week, living for him, maybe facing some opposition, but knowing that the God of all strength who sits on the throne gives us the strength and the courage and the enablement that we need to be able to trust in him and to go forward this week. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I don't even have that hope. I haven't even trusted in that sure and steady anchor of Jesus Christ. I have no hope of the future of of going to heaven because I've never been saved. I'd encourage you, at the end of the service, you're not sure you're saved, you would like to talk with one of us. I'll be standing down here at the front, one of the pastors. We'd love to be able to show you from the scriptures how you can grab hold of that anchor of Jesus Christ and have that assurance of salvation through him alone. For those of us who have that, hold tight. Hold fast, because even if the world gets a little chaotic, our anchor, he's strong. He's steady. He's the rock. He is Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to learn from your word, Lord. I know it was a, a different type of message in some regards. Lord, I pray that as we study out through this book, Lord, that you would give us the confidence and the hope to stand firmly as we go through these unsettling times ahead. Lord, may your gospel go forward. May your gospel be exalted and may you be lifted up for yours is the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.